Let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. The title of the sermon today is called The Way Up is Down. The Way Up is Down. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock him and scourge him and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, okay, that's uh, James and John, that's their mom, comes up to Jesus, comes up to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their, gr- their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they're leaving Jer- Jericho, a large crowd followed them. The two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and he called the men to himself, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened, moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and they followed him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we have this this beautiful picture, these beautiful pictures and vignettes every week as we've been studying. Thank you, God, for your truth that doesn't change. And this morning, Lord, we appeal to you. We ask you that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Your Holy Spirit would instruct us. We love you, God. We submit ourselves now to your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and they're, on, they're going through this town called Jericho. Jericho is the last city. It's kind of the last, uh, you know, the last place of interest on their way to Jerusalem, so they're getting close. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. Jericho is the, the last stop. And so here we see for the third time, Jesus is explaining that he's going to die. He's telling his disciples that he's going to die on a cross. He's going to have an excruciating death. He's going to be scourged, which means he's going to be whipped. Uh, He's telling them that um, he's going to be resurrected, that it's not going to be the end of him. He's giving them details that he hasn't given them in the previous two times that he mentioned that he's going to die. He's giving them, kind of painting for them, a picture 
Now, certainly the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the climax of his ministry. It's, it's everything that Jesus has done to this point in his ministry has led him to the cross. And the cross almost seems like it's this sort of compass for Jesus' life. That everything he's doing is in light of the cross and is leading him to the cross. It's this necessary and inevitable event. And as we know now in light of scriptures that it was necessary and inevitable. It's the only way to break sin's curse on humanity. And so as we start to consider that, we have to realize that the cross wasn't just some dramatic death for, the, for a wonderful martyr. That's not what the cross was all about. It wasn't just punishment for Jesus' theology that was way outside of the normal box. The cross wasn't a tragic end to Jesus' fruitful ministry. That's not a right way for us to view the cross. See, Jesus received the cross, and he lived his life in light of the cross that lied ahead for him. And see, we're to look at Jesus' commitment, almost his faithfulness to going to the cross. And as we know from Scripture, we're to imitate that. Now, the writer of Hebrews does a really good job of kind of pointing us in the direction, or a better way to understand it, at least in my mind, is, is kind of focusing the lens of the cross as we look at the world around us, kind of seeing the cross as this lens that we're to evaluate and understand the world around us looking through this. In chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, he says, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Now we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. Just think of all the hostility that he endured from sinful people. And then you won't become weary and you won't give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. See, the cross is meant to inspire us, to offer us hope. It's, as we consider the cross, it's meant to kind of flex and exercise our, our spiritual muscles. It is important for us to understand and meditate on the cross. The cross was kind of the point, the whole point of Jesus' ministry. It's the power of Jesus' ministry, and it's certainly the power of Jesus' legacy. The cross led Jesus to demonstrate the Father's love to humanity. So Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand the necessity of the cross. He's trying to get them to to understand what lies ahead for them. And we see this climactic moment in this ministry, this important moment. And there's no record in the text. There's nothing here that indicates that there's any response. Like, no one said anything. In fact, the text jumps straight into this, like, weird power play, right? This mom of adult sons kind of, you know, asking for position, right? It says in verse 20 that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, okay, that's James and John's mom, comes to Jesus bowing down respectfully to make a request of him. And he says, she asks, what do you wish? And she says, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. I mean, these guys like pulled the gnarly card, right? They pulled the mom card. They're like sending mom into the job interview kind of thing. Jesus is talking about the cross and then in comes mom. Like, oh my boys, they're so good, right? They totally missed the point it, it would seem like. Now, I don't know how Jesus felt. It doesn't reveal, like, his response or emotions to this. But, man, it's obvious that the disciples didn't give the crucifixion serious thought at this moment. Was Jesus speaking in a metaphor? Is he being super dramatic in order to make a point? You know, we don't know. The text doesn't say. 
We don't know what they thought, but we, we do know what was on their mind, though, don't we? They saw that they're approaching Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the epicenter of Jewish culture. Not just Jewish culture, it's also the epicenter of Jewish religion. And the Jewish religion, their faith, was huge, equal with Jewish cultures. You couldn't separate them, inseparable. And they're getting close to Jerusalem, and Jesus has been preparing them for Jerusalem. Stuff's going to go down in Jerusalem. They knew that. And so here they are in Jericho. They're getting close to Jerusalem. Here's my take on the story. They're getting restless. They're getting close. And they're like, you know, now's the time to say something if we're going to say something, right? They missed the point. And this creates a real tension for us as the reader, readers in the text. And guys, it's, it's important for us to, to see and allow ourselves, when we're reading Scripture, to, to ask the Holy Spirit to show us this tension. Here's Jesus trying to emphatically, like, over and over, talking about the cross. And the disciples just don't get it. And they don't get it. And they don't get it. It creates this tension. The disciples miss it completely. Again, we don't know what they were thinking about the cross at this moment. In fact, we don't even know if they were thinking about the cross. I feel like we've seen a lot of this in the study of the book of Matthew. It's something we've seen over and over. The disciples seem to miss a lot of stuff. And so as Jesus is trying to get them to consider the cross, one thing that would, might do us well to think about is the cross to them was a future event. It hadn't happened yet. Listen, they're on their way to Jerusalem following this guy with everything they are, everything they have. They've abandoned everything to follow him. They're about to, in a one week's time, they're about to stand in utter horror in the shadow of the cross as a brutalized Jesus is nailed to huge pieces of wood and bleeds out and suffers and dies. They're about to stand literally in the shower, in the shadow of this freakishly horrific event. But they hadn't yet. There was no reference for that yet. And so they seem to kind of sidestep the cross altogether. And they bring up something that apparently is more pressing to them. They were wondering, they were wondering where they were going to land. Like, what's going to happen once this whole kingdom thing f- comes down? And so they're like, Jesus, about this coming kingdom, right? And James and John, they, they probably thought they were good candidates. In, in fact, if you were to evaluate them from a, a secular perspective, from a, a Gentile perspective, they probably would have been good candidates. They were very bold, bold men, following Jesus with everything they had. There's one time when Jesus and his disciples, they were trying to travel through a Samaritan town, and, you know, Samaritans and Jews don't respect one another, didn't get along. And so when the Samaritans found out that Jesus and his, and his crew were Jewish, they're like, there's no place for you here. Keep on going, right? James and John turned to Jesus, and they're like, do you want us to just call down fire from heaven and just destroy this whole town, right? And they're like, that's like, call it what you want. I'm going to call it bold. They were, also, they were also well connected. Uh, so Salome, actually, we know, we know James and John's mother's name. Her name is Salome. She is Jesus' aunt. And so James and John are Jesus' cousins. And so Jesus would have known them his whole life, right? He knows them. So he, he knows their boldness. He knows them relationally. So he, he, he would probably have developed a form of trust and appreciation for that boldness, being family like that. Right? They, they were also anxious for a position. They, they wanted to be a part of the kingdom. See, these guys were doing then what we tend to do now. They were trying to get a leg up on the competition. Now, this striving isn't uncommon among the disciples. In fact, in our passage today, in verse 24, we see the other disciples become, it says, indignant over James and John's request. 
Now here, you're probably trying to think the best of the other ten disciples, but here's my take on that. Okay, They're indignant about those two guys' request, not because they're like, wait a minute, Jesus is talking about the cross. You're missing the whole point. No, they were, Peter was like, dang it, they, they mentioned it first. How could I have missed the opportunity to be the first one to like throw my resume at Jesus, right? If the right or the left are taken, where am I going to sit? You know, in the background somewhere? Like, they, they, there was, they, they missed the point of the cross. N- none of them were thinking that way. See, we can't be too critical of them, though. We're still the same way today. And the cross of Jesus for us stands before us, right? But we behave the same way. How much more of an offense is it for me, for us, to miss or ignore the significance of the cross? We who have scripture, Holy Spirit, testimonies. We who live in light of the cross, right? We tend to spend much of our lives focused on competing for wealth or competing for position. Even like in the church and in spiritual circles, we, we have the tendency to be the same way. To kind of ignore the value of the cross. To not look at life or look at church or look at the world around us through the lens of scripture. But, but rather to look and evaluate like non-Christians do. The wisdom, using the wisdom of the world. We tend to be the same way. James and John had not yet seen the whole point of the cross. And they may be missing a lot about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. They got a lot of things wrong. But listen, they did get one thing right. And it's important for us to look at, not just to acknowledge that they got one thing right. But what they got right is important and significant. What they got right is that Jesus in this coming kingdom is the king of that kingdom. And that Jesus rules in that kingdom. And that he rules in glory in that kingdom. That's pretty significant. They got some good stuff right there. They might be missing a lot, but they got something right. And they were very confident when they respond to Jesus. They're very confident, right? In, in the parallel account that's found in Mark chapter 10, we see, we see their confidence come out even more. They say, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, right? You hear that confidence and that boldness there? And then when they were asked if they were going to be able to drink the cup from which Jesus was about to drink, listen to what they say. Again, this is found in Mark chapter 10, the parallel account. They say, oh, yes, we are able to do that, right? See, that's confidence. That might even be borderline arrogance there. They believed Jesus would be glorified and sit on the throne, and they wanted in on that. These guys were walking with Jesus in a show of complete support, serving Jesus, ministering with Jesus. They had given everything they had everything they had to follow Jesus. Their livelihoods, and some of them probably their families, and they're going from town to town with Jesus, following him, because they believed, they believed that Jesus was ushering in a kingdom, and they wanted to be a part of that kingdom. They wanted to see it come. They were investing in that coming. Now stop for a second. It's good for us to process that. So I've been meditating on this a lot recently. I wonder if each of us here in this room today, and I've been asking myself this, do I believe this one thing about Jesus and the kingdom? Do I believe it as much or in the same way as these disciples? See, these men believed in Jesus' kingdom coming so much that they gave everything to follow him. And we can criticize the disciples maybe for a lot of things, right? Quibbling for rank and not, not getting these big lofty points that Jesus is trying to make. But man, I wonder sometimes how different we would be even in light of scripture, 
And how can we tell when we're really following Jesus? How do we tell when we're really committed to something? I, I like that old expression that says, you know, you put your money where your mouth is, right? You just look at the way you live your life. Look at what you're investing. Look at how you spend your time. And, and it, I like this explanation. If you had a friend that, that just had this brilliant idea and then he, he was able to get enough capital to start a business and that brilliant idea was starting to take form, then you got some kind of inside information, and you're like, whoa, this is going to be like the new iPhone kind of big. Not just like this is going to be successful. This is going to be like world-dominating, huge investment. And your friend's like, hey, I just need an extra like whatever. And you're like, I kind of have that whatever in my bank account, right? I would have to get rid of my savings and everything, but I'm really confident in this. You wouldn't go and invest in his competitor, would you? No. What would you do? Unless you're an idiot, you would go and dump all of your money into that. This sure bet, this huge thing. And that's exactly what the disciples had done. They went all in. They wanted to participate in the success of the kingdom. In the same way, and this is where I've been convicted, if I believe Jesus is going to rule and and the whole earth and the heavens, everything is put under his feet like a footstool, like Scripture says, if I believe that, if I believe that Jesus is the only way, truth, and light, then I follow him. I become all about that kingdom. I invest everything in him. And see, that's the buy-in we see here with the disciples. They had bought in fully. And it's that future hope, it's that future kingdom, that hope they have in that kingdom that drives their thoughts and their actions. And in today's text, we see it driving their request. They're like, we want to rule with you, right? And it's interesting how I see it in myself, how, how my expectations, how our expectations of the future can form our hopes and can form our thoughts. Now, see, the disciples' hopes and expectations were tragically very different from Jesus' kingdom. See, they were expecting a literal, a literal overthrow of the Roman Empire. They were expecting a literal overthrow of the Jewish elite system in Jerusalem. Like, Jesus was going to turn all of that over, and he was going to rule as a king in this throne of glory over all of Israel and and over all of the world. They believed that. They thought Jesus was going to get, like, incredible hulk. This mild-mannered, alter-ego, you know, rabbi guy was just going to just one day just become this gnarly revolutionary and conquer Rome and conquer Jerusalem and bring this new kingdom. And that's what they believed. You see, Jesus' kingdom required Jesus to go to a cross so that he could purchase his subjects from slavery. Jesus had very different plans for a much different type of kingdom. See, their expectations were set on this future. They, they, they weren't listening. They didn't view the future in light of the cross. Jesus came to become the king of kings, the king of all kings. He didn't come to compete with other kings. He didn't come to be like slightly better than this king and I can offer you better benefits than that king. He came to rule all kingdoms. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. And the only way to come to earth and not be subject to the current king of the earth is to live a sinless life. And so Jesus came and lived a sinless life. And the only way to defeat the power of sin over the other people that are all subject to the ruler of the world, the other people who are, who are all slaves to sin, the only way to defeat slavery for them is for the sinless man to become sin on behalf of, on behalf of sinners. And then the only way to bring those people into the kingdom, you know, through his sacrificial death and his resurrection, 
He then needs to extend the invitation, and he does that, we know, by grace. He does that. He gives us free will. He gives us the ability to choose, to see the cross, to choose, to view the kingdom of God in light of the cross and say, yes, that's my salvation. That's my king. That's my hope. See, James and John got one detail about his kingdom right, but they completely missed Jesus' strategy. The cross and the resurrection are central features in Jesus' kingdom-building strategy. There's no kingly rule without a cross. There's no authority without their first being shame and abuse. There's no glorious throne without sinless Jesus becoming sin and dying for sinners. See, James and John wanted position and power and purpose. And they didn't understand that the way to those things in Jesus' kingdom, the way to get to those things is through the cross. It sounds familiar to me. My, my heart does the same thing sometimes. I can so easily to choose, I so easily choose to pick and choose what I want to be true about following Jesus. And here we see the disciples doing that, kind of choosing, choosing their own adventure here with Jesus in a way. And Jesus meets these disciples right in the middle of this power pipe dream that they're having, right? And he meets them with love. And he addresses head-on this tendency that they had and head-on the tendency that we have to strive for purpose and position and power. And so Jesus hears this request, and he attempts to circle them back like he always does, circling them back to the cross, saying, hey, guys, the only way there is through the cross, Jesus' kingdom is only accessed, access through the cross. Listen to the cross imagery here as Jesus responds to them. This is our passage, Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus answers them. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? See, Jesus is asking, you want glory? You want to know what it is to sit in glory with me? He's like, drink my cup. Now, that we know that cross imagery. They don't know that yet. But we know that because we've all read the book of Matthew, right? Or, or at least understand the book of Matthew. That, that's a reference to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see that um, in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus, he brings Peter and then these two brothers, James and John, into the garden. It's the night that he's arrested. And he's like, guys, I'm, I'm deeply troubled. I need to pray. Just sit with me. And he goes off a little way to go and pray. We see this in Matthew 26, verse 39. It says, Jesus goes on a little further. He bows with his face to the ground and praying. He says, my father, it's not, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus sweating blood, crying out, take this cup of suffering from me. This cup is the inevitable intersection of the holy and divine Jesus and the horrendously hopeless cross. Two paths that I long forgot the term in uh, trigonometry, but like two lines that never intersect, right? They they never would have intersected. Holy Jesus, right? I see the smart people whisper, I know what that is, you know. (laughs) I have no idea. I'm assuming that's a thing. But see, holy Jesus never would have intersected with a cross. He's never sinned, blameless. See, Jesus is telling these two powerful men, these two faithful men, these two relationally intimate, close men. He says, you want glory? Drink my cup. If you want to sit with me in glory, you must deny yourself. You need to serve others. You need to be willing to suffer. In other places in Scripture, Jesus says, Deny yourself. Pick up a cross and follow me. 
So there's 10 other disciples, right? We've got the two guys jockeying for position, and the 10 other disciples hear this. And we see that everybody misses Jesus' point. And so Jesus explains to the entire group. He says this. This starts in verse 24. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is getting real specific here. He's no longer making abstract connections between glory and the cross that the disciples were missing. He's addressing these universal themes of domination and control that are still very true in the world around us today. He says that the Gentiles lord authority over one another, right? It's only the strong rule. That's just the way it is all over the world. Great men exercise authority over each other. It's this dominating action. They have to stay in power, keep dominating others. Strong worldly leaders consistently exert force on others, right? They have to prove their strength. They have to, they have to prove their worth. It's just like a National Geographic documentary. In the animal kingdom, it's all about survival of the fittest. The, the clever or the strong or the crafty animal will always win out over the weaker animal, right? Once a lion gets wounded, if he's in a place of, of control and the pride, if once he gets wounded, man, he, he better run and hide or something, right? He's going to get taken out like that. The competition's too stiff. It's the same way in the nat- natural world. It's the way the human world is run. The strong survive and even thrive. People with the right connections are put in key positions. And we have a tendency in our culture, we have a tendency just to evaluate one another based on personality type, giftedness, experience, right? You see, a strong leader has charisma, knows the right people, has the right gift set. And Jesus is saying, listen, my kingdom is not like that. It's not a natural kingdom. Don't look to the animal kingdom to form your leadership models. Don't look to the godless Gentiles to try and understand the kingdom of God. That's not where you're going to get your instruction. And then he says, authority in my kingdom is exercised by serving others. He's like, you want to be first? You must become the most selfless servant. See, this is how we should see and understand the world, again, through the lens of the cross. That's how we should identify who is a strong leader, who is a godly leader, who is a godly man. A godly man serves others. See, Jesus is telling this whole group the same thing he told James and John. He, he didn't give James and John a special offer, right? He, he told them one thing, and then he came to the group, and he basically, he tells them the same exact thing. He tells them the same thing. He's like, you want to be first? Become a servant who gives his life. What he's saying is lay your life down. He's saying drink my cup. That's what I'm about to do. You have to deny yourself. Become a servant of all. See, Jesus is calling these men to radical discipleship. These men are learning to follow Jesus. And Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. Where they're going to see some horrific things. He's preparing them for all of this. He says, you want to go with me to glory? Then you need to come with me to Calvary. I believe God would tell us the same thing today. You want to go with God in glory? You need to come with Jesus to Calvary. See, it's not going to be a kingdom of domination. It's a kingdom of service and sacrifice for others. Now, there are many regular faithful church attenders in the American church who are a lot like James and John, right? Many of us, I I used to be the same way. We believe that we can get the glory without having to go to the cross. 
That's bad theology. It's a bad discipleship model. Jesus is confronting that here. One of my favorite uh, preachers to listen to is John Piper. And uh, he's a gnarly dude, this old guy from uh, Minnesota. Anyway, he said this one time. He said, Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we could go to the mall. (laughs) That's so gnarly. It's okay to go to the mall. That's not what he meant. What he meant was Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we could be free to enjoy an easy life of comfort, wealth, and pleasure. That's not the purpose of the cross. Now, Jesus did go to the cross, and he bore all of my sin on the cross. Yes. All of my shame. All of my jacked identity issues. The way I tend to think about myself when I'm not looking at the cross. He, He bore the weight of all of that on the cross and set me free from that. I will never have to go to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Thank you, Jesus. But Jesus did not go to the cross to bear my inconvenience. Jesus did not set me free so that I can live healthy, wealthy, and in prosperity. That is not why Jesus went to the cross. If you want to be with me in glory, drink my cup. Jesus didn't free me from giving up my life. Listen, this is important. Jesus doesn't free us from giving up our life. His work on the cross enables us and empowers us to give up our lives for others. We see this transition here in the text. It's a beautiful, beautiful transition in verse 28. I'm going to read in just a second. He, he goes from like uh, command mode, right? Like giving commands and the way you should, the way you should. He goes from command mode to gospel mode. And he shows them what this looks like. We're going to set it up a little bit with a little bit of verse 27. He says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Okay, that's a little bit of command mode. That's Jesus in command mode. Semicolon, Jesus transfers into gospel mode. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus doesn't want to be served like worldly leaders want to be served. Okay? Here's a shocking statement I'm going to make for all you Christians. Jesus is saying, in all of your serving, don't serve me. Serve others. Now, I know that sounds gnarly. Don't miss what I'm saying here, okay? Here's what that means, because we are servants. Paul uses that phraseology a lot. But throughout Jesus' ministry, he teaches that if we want to serve him, then we need to serve the lost. We need to serve the lonely. We need to serve refugees. We need to serve foreigners. We need to serve ad- the addicted, right? We need those who are in bondage. We need to go to the nations and serve people we've never even thought about before. And here he says, I serve you. You serve others. And and elsewhere in Scripture, he says, when you serve others, you are serving me. See, Jesus empowers this service, that we serve Jesus through serving others. You hear the gospel in there? Because the entire religious world is trying to serve their God of choice. Everyone is trying to prove their worth and their value to some God. And people get right with God by promises and making commitments. I won't do that anymore, God. I promise I'm not going to do that anymore, based on their word. Entire cultures will serve their God, trying to get their, on, their, on their God's good side so God will be with them. How can we please God? This is the cry of the Muslim world right now. How can we possibly please this God that doesn't seem pleasable? See, our world thinks that, uh, that the Lord, that God, lords his power over humanity like an animal lords power over the, those who are subject to him. But see, Jesus has called a discipleship 
It's so crazy that nobody could ever do it on their own. Jesus isn't calling his disciples to suffer so that they can earn favor with some power-hungry God. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him so that they can be free to know God and to serve others. John Piper also said this. He said that the gospel is not a help-wanted sign. It's a help-available sign. That Jesus is saying, guys, James, John, you're not going to be able to drink my cup in your own strength. I love you, but with all of your giftedness, with all of your boldness, with all of your strengths, you're not able to serve me in your own strength. You, we can't just keep serving and serving people. I can't do that on my own strength. I can't serve and serve and serve and people just take and take and take. Or serve and serve and serve and it just gets thrown back, gets thrown back, gets thrown back. I can't do that on my own. I last maybe two days and then I'm like, you know, sharp left turn, burnout mode. I can't do it. Jesus confronts that bad theology, that performance theology, trying to perform and please God with our behavior. He confronts that in John 15, 5. He says, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? You've got one, one plant, two different parts, distinct parts of the plant. You have, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do What can you do apart from Jesus? Wait a minute. You're super gifted though, aren't you? You're real smart. What can you do apart from Jesus? In my giftedness, in my strength, in my position, in my calling, in my supposed whatever I've got going for me. I can do nothing apart from Christ. Nothing. See, the gospel message of John 15, 5, the vine and branches... In Matthew 20, 28, our text today, it's the same message. He's saying, unless you abide in me, that's the vocabulary from John. In our passage today, Matthew, he's saying, unless you let me serve you, you can do nothing. So remaining in the vine and being served by Jesus are both a call to intimacy and freedom with Jesus. We rest in what he supplies. We rest in what he's done. We get stoked over what God is able to do in us and what he's able to do through us. But it's all him doing it as we abide in him. We don't magnify our gifts and our strengths. We rest in his. See, Jesus came to earth as God and as servant. He's both God and servant. It's countercultural. We don't think that way in our culture. They didn't think that way 2,000 years ago. And Jesus shows us and tells us that he came to serve. And Jesus didn't come up come to set up some system where we serve him the way that we think of service. In Acts chapter 17, it explains this really well. Verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. See, God didn't create us to serve him as a servant waits upon a master. He's not waiting for us to do stuff so that he can get what he needs. God created us to know him and join him as he serves others. See, we need Jesus serving us day and night. I need Jesus to serve me every single day and every single night. Man, without Jesus serving me, And reminding me who I am, I am a lost, wandering soul. And I think today some of us might need to adjust, perhaps, the way we think about our service to God. Because Jesus didn't come to earth to get a bunch of servants so he could get his job done. Jesus came down as a man 
He came down to meet our needs so we could be right with God, so that we could then have the freedom to serve others, so we could serve in his strength and not our own. I don't believe that the world needs another radical religion with another radical call to discipleship without intimacy. There's plenty of that in the world already. People giving their lives to prove their worth and value to their God. Doing extreme acts of faith in order to satisfy their God. I believe the world has enough of that. There's plenty of religion in the world. And it brings nothing but striving and competition and fear. And when religion enters the church and we start sniffing one another and we're like, you're not doing that. I'm doing, you know, we start evaluating ourselves and others based on our performance and our gift sets and what we bring to the table and who's doing what and where. See, when religious enters the church, religion enters the church, what happens? Division. People separate. They can't stand to be around. I'm the red carpet people. I'm the blue carpet people, right? It brings separation and division. I don't need another religion. I don't. I need a savior. I don't need a politically progressive savior to save me in the world, right? I don't need some nationalistic savior to lead my tribe of people to glory, The world doesn't need some other charismatic dictator, right, to put the world back right. I don't need another self-help book to help me become more well-adjusted. What I need is a savior. Listen, church, I have sinned every single day of my life. I was a complete slave to my sin. There was nothing I could do about it. I was a slave to my brokenness, the brokenness that the sin brought and the identity issues I had. I had nothing, nowhere to go with that. I was a slave to it. I need a savior. What I needed was someone to save me and ransom me. It's like I was being held hostage by sin. And God came in and paid this crazy, ridiculous ransom price that no one else can afford. And he buys me out of slavery to sin. I I needed that. I needed someone to save me and pay my ransom. And then once I was ransomed, man, I needed power. I needed real, tangible power in my life so that I could walk in freedom. I was saved from sin, but I needed power so that I could walk free from sin. And then... I'm a, I'm a real damage case. I needed someone to walk with me in this new life. Because I didn't know what to do with that power, right? It would just go to my head or whatever. See, this is what Jesus is offering the 12 disciples this day. On the road to Jerusalem. He says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't simply save us from sin and then release us to perform better the next time. Jesus came to ransom us from sin and then serve us. Because we are so well served by Jesus, we then are able to serve others. Church, that is good news. That is the gospel. And as I've been thinking about this, um, I've been thinking about my son Shem. He's two and a half years old. I would apologize, but it's just true. He's way cuter than your kid. Shem doesn't serve anyone but himself, okay? Two and a half years old. He eats, he sleeps, he's awesome to play with. Uh, we all serve Shem. We have, I mean, that's a lot of people. We've got a really big family, right? Shem is very well served. Don't anyone worry about him. He's fine. But what, ha- what would happen one day? What would happen one day if Shem comes up to me and he's like, you know, Dad, I'm pushing three, and here's what I think should happen. 
I think I need to start serving you guys and earning my keep around here. I don't want you to serve me for anything that I don't deserve. What I'm going to do is I'm going to earn my food. I'm going to earn my room and board. And I'm going to do it all on my own. I don't want your help. I'm going to earn every hug you give me. I don't want you to touch me or give me any affirming word unless I earn it. What would happen with him? He'd be dead in less than 90 minutes, right? (laughs) There's no way. Especially the hugging part. He would be done. See, and that's God's heart for us. See, I love my son so much, I would never let that happen. I, I need to serve my son. He needs to know that I love him. You know, on, here on earth, at two and a half years old, I am the healthiest, this is crazy to admit to you guys, I'm the healthiest image bearer of God that my little son has. The affirmation of his father at two and a half is everything for this two and a half year old. If I were to make him earn that from me, how sick would that be? How sick would that be? See, God is the same way with you You don't have to earn favor from your heavenly father. He loves you because he's your dad. We see this clearly in the the last part of our scripture. These blind guys that call out to Jesus as he's leaving Jericho. See, Jesus is so focused on the cross and getting to Jerusalem. But he stops. And he talks to these blind men. Like, what do I have to give to a blind guy? Nothing. What does a blind guy have to offer me? Nothing. Nobody stopped and talked to blind people back then. It was like, you know, it sounds harsh, but it's just the way it was. They might give them money or something. That was normal. But to stop, and especially when you have an entourage and you're on your way somewhere, you've been talking a lot about it, he stops and he talks. It's countercultural. It's remarkable. Jesus is living out this whole, like, the first among you is going to be the servant of all. Jesus is showing the disciples who to serve, and he's showing them how to serve. These guys are crying out, son of David. See, this is the kingly title for the Messiah. These men had nothing to offer, yet they were seeking to be served by this king. They perceived Jesus to be this king, son of David. See, the blind guys are able to see Jesus in this instance right now. It's like these two blind men see Jesus a little more clearly than even the disciples did. James and John had asked Jesus to give them something based on their worth, based on their position. They agreed to do whatever Jesus asked them to do. Whatever you want me to do, Jesus, of course I'll do it. See, they wanted to satisfy their hearts performing for Jesus, but not be satisfied in Jesus' serving them. See, what they're missing, what the disciples were missing this day, they're missing that sweet spot. They're missing the sweet spot of ministry. The sweet spot is living from a place of having been served by Jesus. This is a place of peace, of maturity. This place where we grow to be more selfless. This is the place where we serve Jesus by serving others around us. This blind guy asked Jesus to restore his sight based on Jesus' worth as king. These blind men appeal to the kingship of Jesus. They aren't looking to better themselves by offering what they have, right? They don't have anything. In fact, in the parallel account in the book of Mark, it says that they threw off or they cast off their cloaks and and pursued Jesus. You know, you think about like, how's the blind guy going to find his cloak again, right? Like, they had some mad faith there. See, the disciples had leveraged their strengths and they asked Jesus for a job serving him. See, there's a big difference. Jesus came, listen, this is the point here. Jesus came for our healing. Jesus didn't come for our promotion. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so, church, as we respond 
to this message today, as we, as we try to live our lives in light of this passage, as we try to take, take this lens of the cross and set it before us and look at the world around us, we need to remember and recall that King Jesus has served each and every one of us. The king from heaven abandoned all of his glory. These guys want position. They want to rule in a place of honor. Jesus abandoned all of that to serve us. And then he calls us to follow him. We need to remember we have been well served by our king. Every single person in this room has been well served by King Jesus. And Jesus served you, hanging naked on a cross, bleeding out and breathing his last breath to the point of death. Jesus served us by becoming sin on my behalf. And just as Jesus led his disciples to see and understand the world through the lens of the cross, we should be careful to cultivate this perspective, this lens, as you will, as we look at the world around us. We've been bought with such a high price. We've been saved from sin. Church, we have been served by our Savior. We get to abide in Christ. We get to be served by Christ. And then we get to, be, we get to serve others because we have been so wonderfully served by Jesus. And so today as we respond in worship, let's remember these things. Let's keep the cross before us, that expression that we hear. Let's give ourselves again. Ask God to examine our hearts. In what way am I performing for God's affection? In what way am I being a a stubborn, wrong-headed two-and-a-half-year-old before my dad who loves me? And let the love of God just pour into your heart today. Be reminded of who you are in Christ in light of the cross. Amen? Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of your word. And now, God, we... Submit our hearts to you as we worship you. Pray, God, for your Holy Spirit to lead us in our hearts, to reveal, if there's sin there, to reveal sin. But God, convince us, as Jesus promised you do in John 17, convince us of the righteousness and the value and the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped. Show us the cross. Show us our freedom. Show us our power. Show us, God, how you've enabled us to lay our life down in light of the cross. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.